Welcome to Killing Time, the podcast that investigates the darkest moments in our past to shine a light on wider histories. I'm Rebecca Radil and I'll be your guide. Sit back, relax and listen as we delve into Episode 7, The Red Barn Murder. The sleepy village of Polstead in Suffolk is famed for two things, cherries and a notorious 19th century murder. Nearly 200 years ago, a young woman named Maria Martin was believed to have left the village with her lover, William Corder. They were to journey to Ipswich where they'd marry. As a single woman who had borne three children to as many fathers, a husband would change Maria's standing in society significantly. For 11 months from the point of her presumed departure, it was only through Corder's letters and reports that her family heard how she was doing. Then, in April 1828, a body was discovered in a local landmark known as the Red Barn. It belonged to Maria. She had never left the village. The Red Bond murder is one of the most notorious crimes of the 19th century. And when William Corder was captured and charged with Maria's murder, it caused a sensation, which inspired ballads, plays and novels, and also an insatiable interest in the grisly details of the case. It is, of course, the story of Maria Martin, whose life was cut short. But it's also the story of how the general public can be whipped into a ghoulish interest in chilling deaths. I confess it's a case that's always interested me, and to unravel its complexities I speak to historian Dr Emma Butcher. Dr Emma Butcher, thank you for coming on this podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, it's a thrill, it's a thrill. You're a historian of the 19th and 18th century. You focus on the Brontes and children. But today we're not talking about any of that. (laughs) We're here to talk about something entirely different, which you have a special interest in, and that is the Red Barn murder case. Yes. I'll be honest, when we spoke about this, I thought, yes, this is really exciting. You know, it's a really iconic case, but it's such a daunting one to approach. Oh, it is. It's complicated. (laughs) There's so so many facets. But first of all, I guess it might be helpful if you could just give an overview of the period and the place. Sure. So the year is 1827. And the murder occurred in a small village called Polstead, which is in Suffolk. So George IV is on the throne, and 1827's kind of in those forgotten years, post-Napoleonic Wars and pre-Victoria coming to the throne in 1837. So it's an interesting kind of forgotten period of history, really. And who were Maria Martin and William Corder then? Where do they fit into society? So Maria Martin was the daughter of a mole catcher, And William Corder came from kind of a farming background. Now, the thing is, they were members of the Holstead Parish. Mm. Maria Martin, when she met William Corder, was aged 24. And William was only 22. Now, Maria 
already had two children when she met Corda with two different men in the village. One of those men was William's own brother, Thomas, who drowned in a lake in 1827. And the other was a member of the landed gentry named Peter Matthews. So she had a bit of a reputation. Now, one of those children had died and the other one, the father, was just sending her money for them. When Calder met Maria, he also had a bit of a reputation as being a ladies' man and his nickname was Foxy. And he was also a bit of a criminal as well. He was known to have forged money and stolen pigs. Although he had led a kind of traumatic life as well because his father and three brothers all died within about 18 months of each other. So he was left alone to run the farm as well. Okay, so they're living in a kind of close-knit community then where reputations stick if, yes, if you everybody don't would around. have known everybody basically and do we know how maria and william met each other and how their relationship began we don't really we just know that they were in the same parish and i think that basically it was a little bit incestuous in the parish mm-hmm. so i think that they just you know the everybody knew everybody mentality and everything changed for this small community then in 1827 when maria was murdered. Could you Mm. tell me about the incident and what happened afterwards to Cordo? Yeah, absolutely. So in 1827, Maria gave birth to her and William's illegitimate child. Now, the child died, but it seemed that William still intended to marry Maria. And this is where things get a little bit foggy. So in the presence of Maria's stepmother, who was called Anne, William suggested that they meet at a place called the Red Barn, which was a little way out of the village, and they should both elope to Ipswich and get married. Now, William said to Maria that the parish officers were going to prosecute her for having a bastard child. Now, either he was lying or he misunderstood something because they weren't after her. And basically, although illegitimacy was a stigma at the time, women were Mm. entitled to receive support from the father. And if there was no father, the mother was responsible. But if this was breached somehow, the penalty was only around 10 days in a house of correction. So we know that Maria was receiving support from the father of child number two, but you know, it was only after 1834 with the introduction of the new poor law that basically the father's obligation to send money stopped and the woman's only option was to enter the workhouse. So Maria wasn't in too bad of a situation here. And also, you know, the child had died. So either Corda was manipulating Maria somehow, turning this stigma and shame into kind of coercion, or Mm. perhaps she had been accused of killing their child. And infanticide was a much harsher penalty, usually hanging. So he was urging her, you know, the parish officers are after her. And on Friday the 18th of May, they both went to the Red Barn and Maria was dressed in men's clothing as a disguise. And this is the last anyone ever saw of her. Later on, William resurfaces in Ipswich and he says he can't present his wife because of the backlash they'd both receive. And because of this pressure to kind of present his wife, he was forced to leave the area. And he started writing letters to Maria's family saying that both of them were great, they were fine, they were living on the Isle of Wight and Maria couldn't write because, you know, she was ill or she was hurt, basically making excuse after excuse. So, effectively, suspicion grew. And now this is where it gets a bit weird because Anne, Maria's stepmother, started having these recurring dreams that Maria had been murdered and buried in the Red Barn. Maria's stepmother, Anne, reportedly told Thomas Martin, I think were I in your place, 
I would go and examine the red barn. When her husband asked why, she replied, I have very frequently dreamed about Maria, and twice before Christmas I dreamed that Maria was murdered and buried in the red barn. Finally, on the 19th of April, 1828, so this is nearly a year after they both went to the red barn, Anne persuades her husband to go and dig up the red barn storage bins. And that's where he found his decomposed daughter. Now, some of her features were identifiable, but it was known that William's green handkerchief was found around her neck. So this is how the murder happened. So this is such a strange cycle of events that that Mm. would lead to the discovery of her body. But let's go back to Anne Martin's dreams then. What was she actually saying that she was seeing and who was she telling about these dreams? So I think it was just a rumour, basically. Anne just started having these dreams and telling her husband. And it was only after he went and dug up her body that then she spoke to reporters and the press and the community and said, you know, that it was her that basically kind of discovered the body. And this is then what led to William's capture, which again is a story in itself. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask now as well. So what happened when the authorities became involved in the case? So a constable from the Polstead Parish tracked William to London and then he was helped by a detective officer called James Lee. And he's better known in the later Spring Hill Jack investigations, which was this strange paranormal case about mm. lone attacker with claws and red eyes. But that's another time. But basically, <laughs> <laughs> so Lee tracked him to this boarding house for ladies in West London, where William was living with his new wife. And he'd found her in the Times Lonely Hearts column where he'd put out an advert for a wife and received about 100 replies. So this is just where he was found, yeah, just in this boarding house, living a whole new life. And William initially denied knowing Maria and the charges, but um, Detective Lee found various items around the house, like letters and a passport showing his intent to leave, effectively to flee. So Mm. a pretty dramatic discovery as well as a dramatic murder. So he was arrested, it went to trial, and during the trial and subsequent execution as well, Mm. things started to really blow up. This became more than just a murder, it became a national event in a way. Can you tell me a little bit about the impact of the case? Absolutely. So during the trial, hotels, so this took place in Bury St Edmunds in Suffolk, all the hotels were booked up. It was ticketed entry. You know, William pleaded not guilty to begin with, so there was more sensation about the case. Lots of dispute about the way Maria had died because of the handkerchief, but there was also shot wounds. And then Maria's 10-year-old brother gave evidence he saw William with a loaded pistol and pickaxe near the barn. After that, William's testimony changed and he admitted being in the barn with Maria, but had left after an argument and then heard a shot. But the jury, after 35 minutes, found him guilty. And in prison, he confessed to a priest that he had killed her. He was sentenced to be hanged a few days later, and just before the hood was drawn over his head, he said to the prison governor, I am guilty. My sentence is just. I deserve my fate. And may God have mercy on my soul. In terms of his hanging, there were really, really large crowds, so reports ranged between around 7,000 to 20,000 spectators. So it was a massive 
massive deal, all in the papers and, you know, a massively sensationalised penalty. So in terms of the actual impact from that, you know, the sensation generated by that, a whole industry was kind of created from it because it was the perfect package for a story. Mm. You know, you had the evil squire and the poor girl. You had the dreams, the detectives, the kind of lonely hearts column, you know, everything. It was basically a ready-made story. So this led to a melodramatic novel about it, which was the precursor to the Newgate novels. So very much this new kind of crime genre mm. that glamorised crimes and criminals. Penny Dreadfuls also, there was a Penny Dreadful about it. Now these are originally called Penny Bloods and they cost about 1p. So the working classes could get hold of them. And basically these were kind of sensationalised, mass-produced stories of criminals as well. So you've got this kind of wide circulation between the kind of middle and lower classes of this case. There was also broadside ballads, you know, backroom plays in pubs, and also things like peep shows in fairs. Wow. Where you could go in and pop your little iron and, you know, see the murder happen for yourself acted out. This is massive, this sense of melodrama, because this would then give rise to a whole new genre of fiction called sensation fiction, which was massive in the mid-19th century. And the genre does what it says on the tin, really. It plays with the sensations of the reader. But these had more complex characters and anxiety of the ages, so things like bigamy, murder, deviant women. So literally this one case transformed entire kind of genre of literature, if that makes sense. It's incredible. One of the things that I've just through my kind of cursory research have have found is that they seem to have had models of the barn as well. Is this true? Yes, absolutely. So Staffordshire's were produced, which were these kind of primitive models, um, which were very popular in 19th century homes made in Staffordshire potteries. And basically there were these potteries made of the Red Barn murder, which, you know, people had on their mantelpieces which is really interesting. But there's this sense of kind of the Victorian love of the macabre as well. So Mm. when William was hung, death masks were made of him. Also, his skin was tanned and used to bind an account of the murder, which is quite interesting and very gruesome. The hanging rope was sold in pieces. The red barn was stripped and sold off as souvenirs as well. And actually, William's skeleton was exhibited in the Hunteria Museum in London up until 2004, So quite recently was it only taken down and cremated. Goodness me. If we go back to the actual case as well, Mm. there was one final twist to the case. I mean, we've had so many twists and turns along the way, but there was one final twist, wasn't there, in relation to Anne Martin. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Yes. So rumours started to fly after the case was closed that Anne Martin... now. Maria was about 25 when she gave birth to William's child, but Anne was only a year older than her stepdaughter. So rumours were that Anne and William were having an affair and the two had planned the murder to solve their problem. And the whole idea that Anne's prophetic dreams, they only started a few days after William remarried So perhaps the revelation of the body was seen as perhaps a kind of jealous revenge almost. Wow. And do we know, I mean, was she ever arrested or tried for the crime as well? 
No, she wasn't at all. So it was just rumour. But it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, you know, the I think with all kind of famous crimes, there's always conspiracies and rumours flying around. But, you know, it seems pretty credible that it could have happened. Well, I think so. Like, how on earth otherwise would she have known that the body was in the barn? Exactly. And why did it take so long as well? Like, surely if she had these suspicions, wouldn't she have said not about a year later? Surely they would have been you know, a few days after or maybe a couple of weeks. There's also the great mystery of what actually happened to Maria and William's child as well. You know, both claimed they took the child to be buried in the Suffolk town of Sudbury, Mm. but there's no records and no trace of the child as well. So, you know, why the secrecy and did they have something to hide? You know, there was the rumours of infanticide. Could they have had something to do with the child's death? That's an interesting point as well. So, All of those pressures and the potential external affairs going on as well all contributed in a way into a situation whereby Maria found herself, well, she didn't find herself, she was killed by um, William. Yes. such a fascinating case. Emma, thank you ever so much for... Thank you. ...talking us through this. It's, um, as I said, it's very complex, but you've managed to do it expertly. (laughs) Thank you so much, (laughs) Ivica. Almost 200 years have now passed since Maria Martin lost her life. But what seems clear, well, to me at least, was that she was a woman who routinely defied the expectations society placed on her. She'd endured a lot in her short life, but with each setback and loss, she dusted herself off and endeavoured to better her situation. She was a fighter. (laughs) 